I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Whenever I would list out all the reasons why I would be worried about having a kid, one of them was like, what if I figure out it's the wrong choice? Like, that's a horrifying thing to think about. But I think sometimes you think about your life and how it would be different if you didn't have kids. I think it it happens on either side of that decision. Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Thomas LeBlanc. And I'm Trana Winter. That was Zoe Whittle you just heard. The Giller-nominated writer is back with a new novel. It's called The Spectacular. We spoke with her about having children and straight appropriation of queer culture. More with her later on in the show. I don't know if things will ever be back to normal, but one good indication is that people are fucking again. People are meeting again. They're <laughs> they're going on dates, um, partnering up. Uh, I know that you were single for most of the well for the whole pandemic. Have you been? I've dating? been single for like fifteen years. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Last year before the pandemic, you shared on the show that you broke your celibacy, and I never want to assume anything. Maybe there are things I don't know. Maybe you have a secret partner. I mean, if I did have a partner, it would be a secret, so that's fair. <laughs> um, so you said you're not, you haven't met people. Um, no, but I've been on the dating apps okay, throughout huh? the pandemic. Oh, okay. Yeah. To do what? To have conversations, <laughs> to sex, to send nudes, exchange oh, nudes, to get off. Basically, right, it's right. kind of like you know porn, but right. it's more personal because uh-huh. it's interactive. <laughs> Why don't you have an OnlyFans? I should have, honestly. When I I recently made a sort of calculation, and if I figure that I started sending nudes when I was around 18, <laughs> and you know now we're in 2021, I estimate that I have sent nudes to approximately 5,200 <laughs> men. All for free. <laughs> with face. How many of, of these people have you slept with oh not many at all <laughs> not many at all i mean i think my total number of people that i've slept with in my life is around 30 i'm all talk you know like when i'm talking to these guys you would think that i'm like a nymphomaniac porn star <laughs> but i'm playing into their fantasy like i know what men straight men want right which is basically just like a hot girl who's like has yeah. this insatiable sexual appetite (laughs) at least i can stand by the fact that the pictures are beautiful (laughs) so like i take really good nudes they are explicit but they're really well framed well lit okay that's that's the thing we're so different because i've hooked up like it's my number is way i (laughs) i want to say over Certainly over tenfold, but probably more than your number. Right. But I suck at 
promoting. I suck at like taking the right picture, t- the right what is the right angle. I'm all about like in person. Right. Let's get together. Yeah. Like, kind of you get know, down to business. Yeah. Get down to business. So, what are your tips? I don't know. I mean, like, I do have a good eye. You know, like I'm not a photographer, but I think don't take anything from too up high. Okay. And I think for guys, like, this is too graphic. Because <laughs> you've seen so many pictures of guys, I'm I've sure. I've seen so many and pictures. terrible pictures of guys. Most guys don't know how, exactly. like you. I don't know. And I feel like I'm always art directing them. <laughs> I'm like, first of all, get out of the bathroom. No one wants to see the toilet. That automatically ruins it. Get out of the bathroom. And I think, like, you just have to be comfortable. You know, like, what I learned from the former editor of Paris Vogue, Karin Reutfeld, is that you have to love the camera. That's true. You really have to allow yourself to feel she comfortable. She sold sex as a, as an art di- as a editor. Yeah, and, and, and she's one of my... That's where I yeah. get all my inspiration for my nudes <laughs> and my poses. But I really think just be comfortable and... But how you you put a timer on the camera? Yes. Like, oh my god! Thank how do you do it? Let's say I'm I'm too, I'm gonna do a home shoot. How do I? Okay. Do it? Thank you for bringing that up. The self timer is your best <laughs> friend. Okay. Enough with trying to get your arm super high or super low. You like I just prop up my phone against like I have a bookshelf near my bed, so I just like prop up the phone on the bookshelf against a bunch of books. Set the timer. And, you know, I you take a lot of shots to get the right, right one. So, right. like, don't think you're going to nail it in the first try. So, first, it's not a spontaneous thing. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to take a picture. It's no, a, it's, it's a, a whole shoot. shoot. It's a photo shoot. It's a okay. photo shoot. And what about Which is the why light? I only do, like, two or three photo shoots a year and I just reuse those nudes over and over and over again. Which is funny because these guys always want live pictures. Right. They want to feel special. Yeah. They want to know that the picture is just for them. They don't know. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. No. no. You know, and in using the self-timer, like, do a shoot, you know? Like, again, take the time. Get into the <laughs> yeah. mood. Put on some music while you're doing it. That's the thing. And is try I feel, out different angles. I feel so ridiculous that I don't let myself do it for long. I try, and then I look at the first picture, and I'm like, I look so stupid, and I stop. Mm, you got to keep going. Okay, you got to get going. past the first 10 pictures. Okay. So Trust me, my first 10 <laughs> are hideous. <laughs> My boyfriend is so frustrated with me, but I will take your advice today and I will try that timer and send him what I got. (laughs) Zoe Whittall is our guest today. We're so excited. The Quebec-born, Ontario-based queer writer is back with a fourth novel. It's called The Spectacular and it is spectacular. It's very good. Her third novel, The Best Kind of People, was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize back in 2016. And her second novel, Holding Still for as Long as Possible, won a very prestigious Lambda Literary Award back in 2009. Zoe has also worked as a writer and story editor on TV shows like Degrassi, Schitt's Creek, and The Baroness Von Sketch Show. I would say that Zoe is one of the most essential Canadians on Twitter, period. Like she is essential. If you're not following her and if you are on Twitter, you have to. And this is why I was curious to read her novel. And I read The Spectacular, loved it. It's about these three generations of women uh, and their struggle with having children, not having children and taking care or not of them after. And I wanted to know, speaking with her, how she got started with the project. So originally, like, like the best kind of people, my last book was sort of a procrastination project because I had started writing the spectacular, but I, I couldn't really 
figure out how to do it. And it began because in 2008, I went with my dad to Turkey to see where he was born. And his family has an interesting history there. They're part of like immigrants, essentially, who moved to an area in Turkey, um, which is now called Izmir, and in the 1700s. And so like my grandmother's side of the family went back generations there. And, uh, and so, yeah, like lots of interesting family history there that I, and like lots of cousins still live there that I've been just meeting. And so while I was there, I was like, Oh, wouldn't it be interesting to kind of fictionalize something about my grandmother on that side. So there were two major things that inspired the book. One was the initial, the historical piece. And the second was, um, the fact that like, since I was about 30, I'm 45 now, but since the age of 30, I will kind of woke up every day thinking, you know, should I have a kid? Should I not have a kid? And so I wanted to look at um, characters who either really, really wanted a kid and considered how to do it or really, really didn't want to. Um, I hadn't, uh, you know, the first scene in the book is about Missy when she's 21 trying to get her tubes tied and no one doing it. And I found this fascinating because, you know, you can get a vasectomy anytime you want. But um, if a woman wants to get her tubes tied, if a sister wants to get her tubes tied, um, you, no one will do it. Like, I, my ex-sister-in-law was in Montreal, and she tried, like, six doctors, and she was 38 years old and really resolved that she never wanted a kid, and nobody would do it because of how paternalistic doctors are. That scene, the first scene that you're just describing, was I, I, it was genius. She meets gynecologists and staff in abortion clinics who we expect are on the woman's side, you know, in the call, in the so-called like reproductive health milieu. But then she's really not allowed to make her own decision. And reading this, I was like, that's so interesting that you're using fiction, you know, and not journalism or nonfiction, like, for example, writing about your um, the, the example that you just gave, but why do you think fiction in this case is so powerful to explore something that you said you were intellectually thinking of? It was important to me. It was important to me with this book, like a book that examines like the idea that you definitely don't want to have a kid that you definitely do that you, um, you know, that, um, you know, the, through the character of Carola who regrets having kids, like they're, there's just I wanted to look at it from all sides and, and and all three characters choose at one point to have a kid and then choose at another point not to. So there are three abortions in the book in three different time eras. And that was that was important to me to like to have that be a part of the narrative because um, and specifically to have an abortion scene or alluded to where um, where the where she's not haunted by it, she doesn't regret it. It's like a health choice that she made. And just to, just to make sure if listeners are following us, so Missy is Carola's daughter. Um, Carola kind of abandon, well, does abandon her um, to move to a yoga retreat uh, where she falls in love with a guru who is later exposed in a sex scandal. So Missy doesn't see her mom for years. And from what I understand at this point in the book, Carola abandons her daughter with her paternal, with like the daughter's paternal grandmother, Ruth, who grew up in Turkey. So what you, the story you shared about Turkey, I'm assuming kind of inspired the character of Ruth. But we talked about the taboo of, of Missy's experience, but there's also the taboo of Carola, 
Carola, um, being portrayed as a mother who didn't really want to have a child because in our culture, mothers are portrayed always as being so devoted, even if they're overbearing or toxic. So about that character specifically, what did you want to say about that taboo, that expectation that mothers should always want to, from the moment they have a child, they should never regret it? Yeah. I mean, I was really interested in it because I, you know, whenever I would list out all the reasons why I would be worried about having a kid, one of them was like, what if I figure out it's the wrong choice? Like that's a horrifying thing to think about. But I think often parents do feel that way. Um, not often, but sometimes they do. And it's not that like, and, and I think what the taboo of it all and, and our inability to admit um, that parenthood is, is hard. And um, sometimes you think about your life, and how it would be different if you didn't have kids. I think it it happens on either side of that decision. I feel like, especially these days, it's so hard for parents to, um, to talk openly about the downsides. And, Mm. um, I don't think it used to be like when I was a kid, I remember parents just being openly bitching and complaining about (laughs) (laughs) run out in the yard, you know, like the whole cliche of the seventies parent, but, um, and I think that was probably maybe a little bit healthier, even though I'm sure it would have benefited the kids to not hear it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. It, like, it's, it's, it's a kind of strange polarizing moment, I think, in like parenting culture. Um, we talk a lot about moms on this show and, you know, our relationships to them and, and how that influences our creativity and the work that we do. What is your relationship like with your mom? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I hardly ever get asked questions, um, personal questions. Um, so relationship with my mom. Well, how do I want to say this? So my mom and dad are still together and her and I are kind of very similar in that we're both kind of anxious people. Um, and she's also a very creative person. Um, you know, some people are very close to their moms and share very personal stuff all the time. And we don't have that kind of relationship, but we don't have an acrimonious relationship either. Um, it's just sort of like, I think for the longest time I realized like, oh, it's, it's waspiness. Like it's a little bit of like, there's sort of <laughs> there, um, which isn't always great. And it's, it's, uh, but you know, and I think like for most queer people who came out in the nineties or before, like, I think that even, even though my mom, like the first gay people I met were liberal, uh, United church ministers because my family's part of the United church. And so they were always very gay positive. And I always knew that growing up, but still coming out is, is still in that era was still difficult. So I think that, I think that there were some like gaps there in my twenties. I think that wow. it's a common experience, I think, for queer kids to, like, have distance and then reignited relationships with, with parents and family now, which I think is something that is reflected in my personal experience as well. Totally. And and, and it's it's interesting because it's something I've been going through recently. Like, my, my mom has been Ill, Ill for a few years and she had surgery at the beginning of the summer. And for some reason, we created more memories because I've been way more present this summer with her. Um, so I really, I really relate to that and that 
I'm surprising myself. Like, do you think that what you just said now, do you think that like 35 year old Zoe 10 years ago would have, how would she have reacted to what you just described of, as <laughs> wanting to be with your parents? Totally never. Like I don't think <laughs> that that would have happened. I think that really it's, it's the pandemic. Like, I don't know what it is. I also, to be fair, like thought that I would have my own family and my, and like I, I tended to have partners who, who have sort of gone along with, with what their life plans were or like, um, and so I never really quite pictured, no, I definitely didn't picture this, but I feel like it feels right. Like it feels like, oh, this is an opportunity to get to know them as they're older and to like be a part of their life differently. And that's appealing to me, you know, to have family in that way, even though I know that I would drive me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, speaking about that idea, I mean, you mentioned it just now, but also earlier, you know, this idea that you thought you'd have your own family. Um, and a few weeks ago, you shared on Twitter that um, at the start of the pandemic, you had actually gotten pregnant um, and miscarried. Is that something that you're comfortable talking about a bit? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I wrote I wrote an essay for The Cut about the experience of miscarrying during the pandemic, which was very I mean, a fraught situation at any time, but like specifically it was during the month of April where we were afraid to go to the grocery store and afraid to go to the doctor. And there were so many unknowns still. And so, um, yeah, the experience was probably one of the most frightening, like physically frightening things that has ever happened to me. And also, also just, you know, obviously emotionally awful. Um, So yeah, that has also really been, a major part of how I think about this stretch of time. And do did it change your view on motherhood more broadly? Well, in some sense, in some sense, it, it answered the question of like, I think because every day I had the question of should I or shouldn't I have a kid? And there were times where I was definitely wanted, I definitely was more in the yes camp and, and other times I was in the no camp. And other times I felt like my role as a step-parent was, was as fulfilling or and that I didn't have my own kids. So, like, I really kind of bobbed around in all different um, ways through, in the last decade or so. And then when I got pregnant, which was accidental, I um, it, it did answer it for me in that I was, like, 1,000% like, yes, this is amazing. Like, I felt like a superhero and, like, I felt really um, certain and... Um, you know, my my friend Caleb and I were going to co-parent together because he'd always wanted a kid and hadn't found a relationship that uh, where that could make it happen, where that could happen, and like for the same reasons as me, you know. So, um, yeah, I felt like really, really into it in a way that I was surprised by because I think all the fears that I had had leading up to it were you just you know once you're on the roller coaster you can't get off. So you, you know. Yeah, I think well. What I'd love to ask you is, you know, we're talking about this idea of questioning and trying to, you know, make these big decisions about having kids or not. And the book, again, is so much about potential regret and motivation. And you've mentioned it before, you know, in your own life, trying to understand what the motivation is. Do you feel like in the writing of the book and the things that you've experienced, what do you think is the sort of fundamental motivation for having a kid. It's interesting, you know, and I never really, 
like had a clear answer for myself. There were many times in my 20s where I felt like I was happy not having kids. I couldn't imagine, like just the, the sheer like mind-numbing boredom of, of small children, like when I was younger. And like um, there were a lot of times where I was pretty sure I didn't want them. But then I always... I couldn't quite picture my life in middle age without them. And sometimes I would have, you know, critical voices about like, well, just because you don't have a lot of role models for this age and time in people's lives. And like, but I also think like I I had it, there was, there was a lot of time in my life where I was very, um, like where my, where my priorities were more about, writing and community and activism and parties and connection. And then I slowly became more drawn to a domestic, slower, quieter life. And that made me feel like, oh, now I want kids, you know? Um, And it was sort of a, like, I remember very specifically around not a time at 35 where I was at like the hen house dive bar in Toronto. And like my friends who were about 10 years older were at the bar and we were just chit-chatting and catching up. And they were like, yeah, we wouldn't, we don't want kids. We'd miss out on this. And I looked around and I was like, I've spent like 20 years of my life in queer bars. And like, I fucking loved it. And it was great. But I feel like kind of done with it at that point. Um, And that's when I started to feel like I want to shift gears. And I think like, what's interesting, you know, in the book, Missy initially never wants kids. And then when we meet her, it's a bit of a spoiler, but when we meet her in the last half of the book, when she's 38, she suddenly does. And I was a little bit worried about that because I felt like I was giving, you know, the voices of the paternal doctors in the beginning, like giving them credit or, or like making it seem like they were right. When I don't think that that's true. I think that, you know, people, I think specifically people in authority and specifically doctors, they think of the idea of like, you know, regret as like this boogeyman that, um, that they can control. And I feel like, the truth is that people change throughout their lives and sometimes big decisions about how they want to spend their lives change significantly and that's not and that doesn't mean what she didn't want at the beginning of the book was invalid, you know? When Zoe was talking about the characters in the book or even her own life, it got me thinking that I think I hold on too much to the version of myself that I think I am or that I want to be in the future. And I think it could be a bit more gentle into kind of being open to whoever I could be. How do you feel? I don't know. I feel like Cher always says that she's the same person she was when she was five. She's just taller. <laughs> and I kind of feel the same way. I, I know that I've changed. Right. You know, and I know that I will continue to change. But in a weird way, I think the fundamentals have always been there and will always be there. And I don't I don't know. I don't see myself changing all that much. I mean, I believe you will be a stay at home mother eventually. <laughs> it's my belief. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? 
you're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. So you recently wrote an essay for Harper's Bazaar titled Femme Fatale. So it's about the word femme and how that word is being co-opted by straight cis women. And before we dive into the argument and why you think it is co-opted, can you let our listeners know what exactly you mean by the word femme? Oh, God. Um, so femme, this is one of the reasons why I wrote the article was that it's so, so hard to define. And I think it's a word that has shifted in meaning. But when I came out in 1995, it was about... Um, it was the first, I had the experience of like sleeping with men and feeling ambivalent and then sleeping with women and feeling ambivalent and then being like, well, I guess I'm bi, whatever. And then, uh, a friend of mine who was, who was butch identified at the time was like, I think you're a femme. Like I had this very specific memory of her, like brushing out my hair as we were reading comic books in our city little Montreal apartment. And she's like, I think you're a femme. And I was like, but I don't know what that means, but that feels right. And it was like the first word that felt right. And, and then I started reading about the history of the word and, and, uh, and so I think like in 2021, I think the word femme in, is like, uh, someone who identifies on the LGBT spectrum who, um, who dresses and, and feels feminine. Um, and I think like historically it was more of a lesbian term and I think it's, it's shifted but I mean, like you said, historically, it's really been a queer word. Um, it's not been a word um, used to describe like straight cis women's like fashion sensibility, which is more and more what we're seeing. And because in the essay, you really set up this sort of phenomenon that we're witnessing, which is the word femme being used as, quote, a replacement for the word feminine, specifically when talking about fashion and feminism. You also write, it can often feel like straight women are trying to queer their lives a little stopping short of actually, you know, having queer sex or relationships. And when I read that, like, I was just like, yes, yes, we need <laughs> to talk about this. But it's like, we also can't start policing people's queerness. And so like that, I feel like that creates this complication. I guess my question to you is, how do we sort of make that space for these things to be redefined, but also protect the importance and meaning of our queerness? that's that's it that's why I wrote it like I I feel like I had this moment where I realized that they were selling shirts with the word femme on them at H&M and I was seeing it used by straight women in the media to just basically in place with the word feminine and it was just driving me bananas like it just felt like why why are you trying to have this word you know it didn't make sense and it specifically didn't make sense if they weren't using the word butch like you know I never saw a woman on Instagram wearing her boyfriend's shirt and a ball cap being like, ha I'm, I'm, but you know, like, um, and I felt like it was one of those things where, and I, I think I've seen it over the last 20 years in various forms where certain types, certain words, certain styles are become fashionable because of queerness. And then they no longer, become ours and I think I think there's some really specific things around femininity and like how hetero 
sexist culture devalues femininity um, and why that's happening. And so that's why I wrote the, you know, the piece, which is because I kept trying to defend my position that it was a queer word and then I would, my logic would sort of fall apart and I wouldn't really quite be able to explain it. And so writing the essay was a way of figuring out how to articulate the feeling I was having of, of anger and frustration that, um, that the word was like, you know, in my lifetime of being queer had been devalued by queer people. And then now it was becoming this like popular catch all for anyone with a lot of, you know, feminist style or whatever. Um, so I, that's why I decided to write the word. And specifically because like when I tweeted about it, I got so much response from people who were on all sides of it. Like a lot of people were like, yeah, fuck it. Like we don't, um, you know, it's a queer word and straight women can't have it. And then other people were like, well, all language evolves and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and I, I felt like it was really important to me personally to like reflect on, you know, when I came out as femme and how it changed over the years and like why I still feel attached to the word and why I feel like it being its definition shifting away from us is problematic. And it's not the only word that you're, uh, obsessed with. You also had a, uh, a, uh, a, a Twitter experience with the word, uh, dyke, uh, using the word dyke and you were called out, but younger, young queer people who said that was offensive. Um, and your response is hilarious. You said, if you watch Glee with your parents as a child, you don't get to police my language. Um, where do you, what do you, where do you stand with, you know, sort of the younger generation growing up in a world that's more open, but then like policing a word that's so important to the queer community as the word dyke. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Glee makes me homophobic. Um, <laughs> that was such a terrible show. Um, but I, yeah, you know, it's a hard one because I don't want to be shitty and ageist against young people, but I do feel like there's like an, an arrogance born of, lack of knowledge and lack of understanding of queer history that comes from queer young people when they're like 18, 19, 20, or they're just in university for the first time. And like, you know, we all go through that stage where we think we know everything. And I can reflect back on that time in my life and laugh at how much of an asshole I was in some ways, uh, which is a little bit of a rite of passage. But I also feel like it really does materially affect us sometimes like um you know I had a sensitivity read done on the spectacular that my publisher did and I think that they hired someone who was probably very young and kind of Ivy League-ish and like um who's who wrote in their comments that the word like could be offensive to people and I was just like why why it made me think about like the you know, corporate publishing and, and why sensitivity reads are done and who they protect. And for me as a, a cis writer, like when I write trans characters and I often do, um, you know, I have a group of trans friends who read everything I write and to have conversations with in terms of making sure that I'm doing my research and um, not fucking up, you know, like, and that's sort of an uh, informal sensitivity reader, whatever, like you want to call it, that's sort of like an informal process that I go through to make sure that my work has integrity and that it's um, not, you know, I don't think art can do harm, but I feel like uh, 
that's just like how I deal with my own ways that I want to make sure that I'm telling the story that's worth telling. That's great. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's been so lovely. Thank you so much, Zoe. You're welcome. Have a great, Have a great day. day. Good luck with everything. Thanks again. Zoe Whittall. Her new novel, The Spectacular, is available wherever good books are sold. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? What are you obsessed with? So my obsession this week is a throwback, and um, it's Aaliyah, but more specifically, her third self-titled album, 2001's Aaliyah, the one with the red cover. I'm sure people recognize that album cover. Um, I don't know the details, but there's been this sort of legal dispute over the ownership of Aaliyah's music for a really long time, and so... For years, this music has not been readily available. It hasn't been on any streaming platforms. Finally, that's all been solved. Her entire catalog is on Spotify. And she is just so good. Of course, many of you know that Aaliyah's life was cut tragically short in a small plane crash um, in the early 2000s. The self- right before September 11th. I remember right. starting Sec 5, and it was a few days after we be- school began, and people were devastated. Really devastated. And she was such a promising talent. And when you go back and listen to these albums, and my favorite, again, is the third one, um, like it's heartbreaking to imagine what could have been mm. and what could have come after. And my favorite song on that album is called Rock the Boat. Of course. Classic. It's so hot. <laughs> like, if you're horny and you listen to that song, it's a pretty lethal combination. <laughs> R&B. I'm I'm kind of glad I was like 15 in 2000 because we I got to be a teenager during this like moment of R&B horniness. It was all there was. I mean, literally in the song, like it's repeated throughout the song. Um, she's just saying, "Stroke it for me, stroke it for me, stroke it for me." <laughs> oh my! Which God. is what I'm doing with the she guys was, that I'm talking to. Exactly, you're the Aaliyah. <laughs> she was so young. Yeah. Yeah, very young. Um, but I, I do think for all music lovers, um, it's it's a great opportunity to go and listen to this, you know, brief but really meaningful and stunning discography. Like dive into the Aaliyah mm. world. So that's mine. What are you obsessed with this week? Uh, also a record. Uh, I'm obsessed with a French singer. So I don't know if you know her. And if I am the person breaking her to you, I will be very excited. I hope so, because I'm always on the lookout for a new French singer that I don't know. Do you know Clara Luciani? No. Oh, my God. Okay. So Clara Luciani, a typical French girl, uh, not like quirky, beautiful, right? Uh, amazing haircut, amazing style, um, sad disco bops. So Jessie Ware meets Dalida. Oh my God, I'm sold. Yeah. So she, her uh, most recent album is called Coeur, which means heart in French. It came out in June. 
Um, and she sings. So the production, first of all, is phenomenal. It's very, it's very rich. It's very current. It's almost indie, also. So it's not too pop. It's right. not like Dua Lipa disco, but right. it is a, du- a disco album. Um, reminds me more of maybe Charlotte Gainsbourg, Lou Doyon. These like cool French girls, but she delivers amazing sort of raspy vocals on this like thumping bass line. Very good. And the lyrics are very good. There's in one song, my favorite line on the album, she sings that it's very simple. She just sings that she she shouldn't fall in love with singers because they're going to get away anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it sounds very basic like this, but if you listen to it now, you'll just hear the emotion and hear Clara kind of reflecting on her own life because we feel there's like lived experience there. I'm really excited to listen to this, but I have to ask you, how does it compare to the sound of your arch nemesis, Charlotte Cardin? <laughs> okay, so Charlotte Cardin, for people who don't know, she's a, so just a Quebecoise because singer. Because I didn't enjoy Charlotte's album either. No. It felt Clara. very disingenuous to me. And just like, it's this, there's this thing happening in music right now as a result of social media where it's just, it's everything is very... Posery, right? You know, it's like it's, it's much better, better taste. Okay. And I think is there people, like an actual emotional oh, there's emotion resonance? and soul? Okay. And there's so much soul, and and uh, yeah, I'm not a big Charlotte Cardin fan, and I want to create room for people who are not fans of Charlotte Cardin because here in Quebec, where we live, she is a big yeah. star. Maybe you don't no, know her where you live, yeah. And no offense to her or the people who listen to her, it just didn't work. But for physically, me. kind of the same vibe, like scrawny, tall, modelly looking woman. Well, that's women. why I brought up yeah. Charlotte because what you're yeah. describing, I'm like, are you leading me down a Charlotte no. path? No, and Charlotte is not disco. Like it's electro, right? But it's not like disco. Okay. Um, and by the way, Cal de Pirata is a new disco song, which is really good. I know. That we've Let's had on keep the, show. the disco yeah, going, people. Seriously, especially French disco. We need more French disco because you and I, we love Delida. Yes. And there's this like tragic in some of the Clara songs. There's the same. That's what I need. Tragedy. That, I need that some Delida melancholy. Had. Yeah, melancholy and and I would even say some Milan, some Milan Farmer thrown in there. So I think you, you'd really love it. Chosen Family is produced by me, Trana Winter. And me, Thomas LeBlanc. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Nantali Ndongo is our contributing producer. SK Robert is our new digital producer. Welcome to the team. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. And I want to take a minute to thank Judy, uh, who was our digital producer for many years. It was a pleasure working with you. And good luck on your new endeavor. Yes, we love you, Judy. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. And we are recording this season at Tome Park Studio. Of course, don't forget to follow us on social media at Chosen Family Show. That's our Instagram. Check out our column and videos for Extra, which you can find at Extra Magazine. That's xtramagazine.com. And we are happy to be on a new platform. Uh, There are a few episodes of Chosen Family on the audio podcast app. It's a French podcast app by Radio-Canada, the sibling uh, organization to CBC. So we're really happy to have our greatest hits really on the on the platform. Of course, listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a five-star review. 
we never ever can say goodbye. We can say goodbye. <laughs> no, 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 no way. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.